Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. The prorogation case has reached the Supreme Court. We're right in the middle of it. It's complicated. It's really important. We need a lawyer. Luckily, we have one. Do you mind that introduction? (laughs) Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. So Catherine Barnard is with us, Professor of EU Law, Chris Bickerton, Helen Thompson. When we had Kenneth here a couple of weeks ago, we had to begin by getting him to declare his interest because he was party to the case that reached the Scottish court. You're not involved. No, totally not non-partisan. Non-partisan. E- excellent. Did you watch it yesterday? Bits, yeah. Particularly Bits. David Panic, who um, I think gives a masterclass in how to be a good lawyer rather than a barrack room lawyer. Okay, and I watched the afternoon, so I watched the other guy, Lord Keane. I know a lot of people have said this, but it is really like watching Test Match Cricket. Not exciting Ben Stokes Test Match Cricket, but the kind of grindy version where you can do other stuff at the same time and then suddenly <laughs> something happens and you think, well, That's that, what was, was that it? <laughs> Did you watch it, Chris? I watched bits of it as well, yeah. I didn't watch any of it. So, Catherine, let's just kind of sketch in some of the background here. So where do you think we are in this? We've had the the main case laid out by both sides. The commentary is making it quite clear that there's the issue of whether it's justiciable, if that's how you pronounce it, and then if it is, whether the government acted for the motives that panic is saying and therefore illegitimately or unlawfully. Which one is weighing most heavily at the moment? So panic's skill seemed to be to kind of bury the justiciable issue till the end and really focus on what the government was doing. The justiciability issue is is always a very vexed one because it goes to the core of our constitution, separation of powers. Traditionally, the courts are highly reluctant to get involved in second-guessing political decisions because they are very mindful of the fact that they are not democratically elected. And so the approach taken by the High Court of England and Wales where they said, this is high politics and therefore we the court should not get involved, is very much the standard approach. And so they ruled that the matter wasn't justiciable. Scottish court takes a very different line. They said no power should be unlimited. There's quite well-established case law that says that even prerogative powers can, in certain circumstances, be judicially reviewable. And in this case, because what the Prime Minister did so undermined our constitution that not only is it justiciable but we find that there is an abuse and so really the reason why this case is quite so important is it's really looking under the bonnet of our constitution to try and understand what our constitution actually means yesterday given what you said there was therefore a surprising focus on the other side of it most of the arguments revolved around what the government was doing including the question of this length of time for a prorogation, could it be justified in the terms that the government was justifying it to prepare for a Queen's speech, to allow for the party conference season, given there was going to be a recess, it only counts as seven days. 
the justiciability issue did seem to be in the background rather than the foreground of it. This is the thing I'm struggling to. I mean, is the justiciability issue simply something that the court will have to take a view on and Absolutely. then it will come to this? Does it's, it happen it's in that an, sequence? It's, it's the anterior question. It's a prior question. You can't take a view on the substance unless there is, to use the legal term, locus, the right to actually hear the case. So why were the lawyers for both sides focusing on the secondary issue? Because they hope that by emphasising the second issue rather than the secondary, but the second issue, it will strengthen the case for the court to find it is a justiciable matter. Because the point they're trying to get across is what, or certainly the point that Gina Miller is trying to get across, is what Boris Johnson did so undermines parliamentary democracy that therefore something needs to be done. Hence the court should give itself the right to hear this case. And so one more sort of semi-technical question before I bring the others in. When you look at it, the government side was really focusing on what it saw as the weaknesses in the Scottish judgment. So it was sort of inviting the court to see its role, not as assessing some grand principle, not as taking a step back and deciding what kind of a constitutional order we are, but simply reacting to two previous judgments. You're the Supreme Court. Here's the judgment of the Scottish court. They made a mistake. He went on and on about this. They misunderstood the nature of recess. They got it wrong. Having made a mistake, it's easy for you. You can just say that one court got it right and one court got it wrong. And that's your job as a Supreme Court. It's simply to pass judgment on lower court's decisions. Is that plausible? It is plausible. And it may be the appealing way forward out of a decision which is so high profile and whichever way it goes will cause considerable chagrin. If they were to find against Boris Johnson, then it clearly raises serious questions about his continuance as a Prime Minister. If they find against essentially the, the Scottish court, if they say this isn't a justiciable matter, then it paves the way for Nicola Sturgeon to say, look, you courts in London, don't listen to our judges. This is our highest court and you've ignored them. But if they say the Scottish court just made, broadly speaking, a technical mistake, does that give them an out? This is sort of my question, because it seems like the government seemed to be hoping we're giving you a way out here, which is to find that the Scottish court simply, he kept saying it, Lord Keane, he kept saying this was his big reveal. It wasn't that exciting, but he said they got it wrong. They made a fundamental mistake. They say that during recess, Parliament can recall itself and it can't. It doesn't have that much to do with the rest of the case, but it's like, here's a mistake, here's your out. Yeah, and it, and it may be that they go for a very simple solution. They may also say, in principle, these cases are justiciable, but on the facts of this case, there hasn't been an abuse. So this is a, the sort of middle ground outcome, um, because I suspect what does worry them is that you have some power which is totally unlimited and without control. And by that I mean... Boris Johnson, I think rather cleverly, prorogued for only five weeks and it was wrapped up with the party conference season. But if you take the logical consequence of that, you you could say, well, actually, he could prorogue for a whole year. There's nothing to stop, well, 364 days. The only one day that Parliament would need to sit would be to sign off on money issues. Or, more realistically, Parliament is prorogued every time a difficult legal issue or difficult or controversial issue is heard. So the fact that prorogation can be used to turn on and turn off Parliament without any control at all might be deeply unappealing to the judges. I was just remembering something that Lord Sumption said a couple of nights ago, because I think um, that question was put to him and he said, well, 
One is tax. Army Act, as you also mentioned, you kind of batted away this possibility that the Prime Minister could just simply, for extended periods of time, prorogue even up until a, a next general election, something like that. So there are reasons why Parliament had to sit, but and there's also now under the Northern Ireland Executive Formation Act, there's got to be a regular reporting. But the, the point is that it would be possible to repeal that Act, and then it is possible to have the right to prorogue, which is an executive function, and if there is no judicial control at all, it could be abused. And that may be what would trouble the courts. I think the problem here, though, with this argument is that it completely ignores the fact that there's supposed to be a political control over how the executive uses its power, and that comes through the House of Commons and ultimately the electorate. We don't have a constitution that's based on the idea that the only recourse that there is to the abuse of power is legal. In fact, we have a constitution that's based on the idea that the recourse for the abuse of power is supposed to be political. And I would say that if we end up with a Supreme Court saying that this is justiciable and finds that Johnson has used the proroguing power illegally, we're going to have departed into completely new constitutional territory where the role of the judiciary is concerned. At the very same time, we've departed into completely new constitutional territory where we have an executive that has not got the confidence in any shape or form of the House of Commons. I mean, we have a, you know, an executive that has a minus 45 majority. This executive should not exist any longer. It's, it's, it's in a, some kind of like constitutional zombie um, state as far as our constitution is concerned. So if we depart company on the political side with a really long-standing constitutional principle that the executive has to have a majority in the House of Commons, whilst we're departing company on the on the judicial side of saying that the judges aren't supposed to assert some higher principle of constitutional law that they uphold over Parliament, then we're completely... I mean, I, I can't even begin to think where we are constitutionally. It doesn't make sense. But the paradox is that if the courts were to say that the prorogation is unlawful... What does that mean in practice? Does that mean that you revert to the order of the Scottish court, which is to say that the prorogation is null and void, therefore you set the clock back to the date of prorogation, and therefore all of the bills that have fallen then get resurrected, including the bill on domestic violence? And then does that allow for the executive then to say, actually, we're going to prorogue again the day after? And this is one of the issues that came up in the Supreme Court yesterday. Another part of the government's case is that, to go back to what Helen was saying, Parliament could have stopped this. There were routes for Parliament to assert itself against the executive and also to prevent prorogation. It chose not to. It focused on preventing no deal and the Article 50 issue. So we're doing this in the context of Parliament having chosen not to assert itself. Except it is a power of the executive. It's a prerogative power. So it's quite difficult to see how Parliament could have stopped it. Well, Parliament could have replaced the executive with an alternative government. And it, I mean, this is a question, did it choose not to? Or was that actually just simply not possible? It didn't even try and produce a motion. I mean, couldn't it have produced a motion saying that it it wouldn't accept the use of the prerogative? Because Parliament wasn't in session then, was it? It was because he did it on the 28th of August. No, but at the beginning of September, Hmm. there was enough time for Parliament to accept the principle that they needed to move to a general election, Hmm. rather than to take the route which they took, which was to put as a priority, not a general election, but avoiding no deal in legislative terms. Maybe with some knowledge, in fact, that that then meant that the recourse would have to be through the courts rather than through Parliament. That seems to me that that was a conscious choice, at least not maybe not a conscious choice of everyone together, but that was a consequence of the way Parliament behaved. It is important, I think, to see as well is that there is a reason why Parliament, the majority in Parliament, chose this route, is, is because 
there are too many people in the opposition, including the Labour Party, who do not think that the opposition leader is a fit person to be Prime Minister. If that weren't true, then Parliament could and would have acted differently, I think, at this moment, and we wouldn't be in this position. So I want to come on to the wider question of how you think, Catherine, the court sees its role here, not just on this issue, but more broadly, because it's getting the kind of scrutiny it's never had. I mean, this is huge. Um, There's real pressure on them. But there was one aspect of it yesterday that struck me. Neither side can talk about one of the primary reasons that prorogation happened. So there's a sort of puzzle here, which is it's meant to be this completely outrageous thing that Boris Johnson has done, but it's not that obvious what big advantage he's gained by doing it. He didn't do it over the 31st. He didn't do it in order to get a no-deal Brexit through. He was squeezing options, but he wasn't wiping out options. So one side has to say this is a terrible thing, although nothing that terrible happened. The other side has to say it's a completely normal thing, but no one believes them because the justifications for doing it don't add up. And there is another reason that they might have done it, which is they did it to be provocative. I mean, that the Cummings defence or attack, I don't know which way it goes, is that by proroguing Parliament, even though it didn't produce some huge political advantage in parliamentary terms, negotiating things through Parliament, it was great for setting up the battle lines for a coming general election, the courts, Parliament, the elite against the people. But neither side seems able to admit this. So the government can't say that was our real reason, because then they're admitting their real reason was not the reason they've given. But the other side can't say it, because it's not this kind of sinister stifling the will of Parliament. It's purely political. And that seems to me to be part of the problem here. Neither side can talk about what might have been the reason this happened. Yeah, I think your analysis is good. And I would say that the period of prorogation actually was quite clever because it didn't go over the 31st of October. And of course, if if it had gone over the 31st of October, it would have strengthened Gina Miller's hands. And I think, yes, there may have been a Dominic Cummings strategy of preparing for a general election, people versus parliament rhetoric. But I genuinely believe they thought it was really important to prorogue parliament because they wanted to try and stop the very thing that did indeed happen, which was a, a no, essentially a no-deal bill now act, because they wanted to send out a very clear message to Brussels that Brussels needs to make concessions on the withdrawal agreement And they knew that Brussels wouldn't act so long as they thought Parliament would act. And indeed, actually, from that point of view, you can see the logic in what Boris Johnson and Cummings were trying to do, and that the Ben Burt bill has frustrated that logic. Now, from their point of view, of course, it was wholly sensible because they are convinced that a no-deal Brexit would be very serious indeed for the country. But you can also see that the political strategy on the side of the Prime Minister was rather logical and sensible. And the fact that the political strategy in your terms therefore failed, could that be part of the government's defence? But of course they can't say that. Exactly. And so so no one can say the real reasons that this is happening. I think they expected, I think, that the prorogation would have more of an effect than it did. I think going over the 31st of October would have been a dramatic step that would have been a step too far I think but what they did expect is that it would fundamentally shut down the options open to parliament what they didn't expect I think was how quickly parliamentarians moved how willing some Tory MPs were to go over the line against their own government and in the space of a very short period of time the thing they wanted to avoid occurred which was their hands are now tied 
And you've got this debate about whether Boris Johnson is willing to break the law or not. Their hands are tied, which then shifts the whole Brexit circus towards deal territory and trying to find at the last minute some deal, especially over, over the Irish backstop. That's not where they wanted to be, I think. So in some ways, it was kind of definitely provocative, but I think it was not particularly clever or successful as a strategy. Doesn't it take, mean that the issue that the Supreme Court faces is really the the justiciable one? Because all of these reasons, you can have bad reasons to prorogue, but you are not wrong to do so. You just may be doing them for reasons that you consider bad. But the reasons that we today may consider bad in another era by another government may be considered by some people good. It should be neither here nor there from the court's perspective whether it's good or bad reasons. It's just simply whether there is a legal Except you know, case. traditionally in public law, if there is a mixture of reasons, some are good and some are bad, the bad ones will contaminate the good and therefore the decision would be struck down. But there is a fundamental question here, isn't it? Is is can we reasonably expect politicians to act in non-political ways? I mean, <laughs> clearly the answer is is that politicians have political motives. I mean, there, there isn't really any escape from that. Now they have to exercise the things that they do politically within the constraints of the law, so that they cannot act illegally. If you go back to what the English High Court, the English and Welsh sorry, um, High Court said, they recognise quite clearly that. Prime Ministers in the past have prorogued Parliament for political reasons. If Boris Johnson, and this in some sense goes back to your point, if Johnson did this for political reasons, he's not actually acting differently than Prime Ministers in the past have done. So what we're going to say is, is if that is a reason why the Supreme Court can basically say that the judges can essentially make that act null and void. Again, I'd say we're moving into completely different constitutional territory and we're getting into something that is much more like the kind of politics that we have in the United States where you have, on the one hand, a whole set of you know, like judicial principles, a way that the arguments are made about politics are done via law and actually a recognition pretty much by everybody that a lot of the way in which then judicial review applies is itself very, very political. I was talking to someone visiting from America last week, works for the American government, and was asking, how does your politics as the Supreme Court work compared to ours? And I said, well, I don't know, because we haven't had one until sort of this week. And I said, well, one obvious difference is that in your country, people have a rough idea of the political shape of the court. So justices are appointed through a very political process. People know who they are. They can usually guess which way they're going to go on many big issues. And he said, don't overestimate the knowledge of Americans of who's on their Supreme Court. If you just took a random section of people from the population, asked them to name the Supreme Court justice, they couldn't do it. To which I said, well, the difference is, if you took, we were sitting outside the law faculty here, if you took people in the law faculty here and asked them to name the 11 members of the Supreme Court, I'm not sure they could do it. I certainly couldn't have done it until I looked this morning and tried to, I couldn't, well, don't ask me now, I couldn't memorise them. But we, the thing is, even if you know their names, do we know, do we have a sense of what their legal political philosophy is we may know after this case particularly if it's divided judgment but beforehand in the way that you know, the 5-4 US Supreme Court you can line them up do you have any sense Catherine of how these people line up no, who are they well on the point who are they and to be fair to my law students of course they would know who the, sorry I was being uh, a bit the, the, the <laughs> I should have said Supreme if you got court. into the politics department yeah, and asked that, people they wouldn't matter. have had a clue I haven't a clue I would say, because of course the students read the judgments and the judgments are all named, unlike it must be said the judgments of the Court of Justice, where of course it's a single judgment and you say you don't know who is saying what. And of course Lady Hale, who is the president, is a graduate of Girton College. So the students absolutely do know 
know who the justices so, are. So I should say, looking this morning from my position of complete ignorance, I was very struck by the fact seven of the 11 Cambridge educated. Well, there, there is so one way you could slice and dice this is you've got this kind of Etonian Oxford political government confronting this primarily grammar school educated Cambridge Supreme Court is that the new politics uh, well that that would be it that's, that's I hope not <laughs> <laughs> and the people are uh yeah but on on the subject of what their politics are, of course we don't know. We don't have hearings before the Supreme Court. They're recruited through a more a much more transparent process than in the past. The tap on the shoulder is long gone. But these are people who, with the exception of Lord Sumption, who has now stepped down, have worked their way up through the judicial hierarchy and are considered to be serious and extremely competent lawyers. And of course, it's a mix of judges from England and Wales and judges from Scotland and from Northern Ireland. And that's really important too, to help legitimise. But what's really interesting, so 11 of them are sitting, there's a panel of 12, obviously you need an odd number if they're split 6-5. This is only the second time that you've had all 11 sitting. So it absolutely sends out the message that they know this case is an extremely big deal. And that's why, while they might be able to sort of put out a win-lose judgment on Friday or on Monday, the reasons will take an awful lot more finessing. And say it did split 6-5, would it be the case after that that we could say of the five or of the six, well, they've emerged from behind their kind of mask and we can see that this group are clearly in future going to be more broadly, there are constitutional principles at stake here that go beyond precedent and that we can apply more broadly and that the other lot might be more narrowly focused on some of the... Well, we're already seeing that because a lot of people have commented already on the split in the Miller 1 case and a number of the judges from Miller 1, that was the case, remember, about whether there needed to be an Act of Parliament to trigger Article 50. Those, a number of those judges are also sitting on this case and so the argument is, well, they go the same sort of way in this case they did in Miller 1. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Can I ask you, Catherine, a question? Say that the, the Supreme Court does side with the, the Scottish Court of Sessions. How is that principle, that constitutional principle that has been asserted, you know, some, an abstract principle of representative democracy or good behaviour, that that is being upheld over past constitutional practice in this country? How do you see that being legitimated? So this is why, of course, the judges have traditionally not got involved in these questions because they are acutely conscious of the fact that they haven't got their legitimacy either through political appointment nor through election. What's interesting is, of course, as we all know, there's no written constitution in this country. Our constitution is quite a rag bag of stuff. It's some acts of parliament going back to the 17th century, some conventions which in the past have not been justiciable. And also now what we're seeing, and it was referenced in the Miller One case, the role of the common law as well. And I think from from a legal perspective, what's really interesting going forward is how the common law is being used and will be used in the future as some form of constitutional yardstick against which to test other 
decisions. I'll give you one concrete example, which um, there's a case called Unison. And that case was about the imposition of tribunal fees. And what we saw after the tribunal fees were introduced, these are fees for people going to employment tribunals, is that claims to employment tribunals dropped off a cliff. 80% drop off after fees were introduced. This was challenged through the courts. Eventually, the Supreme Court said, very passionate judgment, that this was contrary to the common law principle of access to justice. And so what you're seeing in that case is a small corgi step towards using the common law as some sort of yardstick against which to test, in that case, acts of the executive. What's interesting, it seems to me, about this is is that the common law has been seen as a central part of our constitutional history. And what the common law ultimately rests on is an idea of an appeal to experience. That is, in some sense, what is supposed to distinguish the way that we do things in this country from the way in which they're done elsewhere. I'm not making a judgment whether that's um, correct or not, but that has been the discourse around common law, is the appeal to experience and, in some sense, to history. If we end up, then, with the common law being used as a way of asserting an abstract principle, like the Scottish Court of Sessions... I think is is moving in in that direction then again I'd say that that takes us into some completely new constitutional territory where we haven't been before and at that point it seems to me I don't know how all these different things that we've done to our constitution ever go back together again without starting again and yet starting again is what you're not supposed to do in a common law tradition It's it's fascinating isn't it I think this may be a a legacy of the effect of having been in the European Union um, because the European Union the, the treaties effectively acted as a constitutional yardstick and so what you saw and you have seen over the last 30 or so years have been challenges to UK legislation to say it breaches a a provision of the treaty for example in my field breach of article 157 on equal pay and what we've seen is that judges and a generation of lawyers have been brought up with an understanding that you can appeal to some higher norm to challenge not just secondary legislation but also acts of parliament provisions of acts of parliament and even with leaving the eu you can't put that knowledge and understanding back into a box and that's why i think unison the case about tribunal fees is really interesting it's got nothing whatsoever to do with brexit but what you've seen in that case is the use of the common law as that yardstick. And going forward, once we leave, there will need to be some sort of other constitutional principles which have to be developed to deal with the problems that the EU have already dealt with. For example, interference with the free movement of goods. Scottish Parliament says minimum alcohol pricing. That affects the right of English manufacturers to sell their goods at the price they want to in Scotland. They want to challenge that. How do they do that? The moment they do it is saying it's contrary to the EU treaty. When that's been taken away, will they then have recourse to some common law principle that says that there should be no discrimination between manufacturers? I think there is an obvious irony here, which is a lot of the reasoning around Brexit was about a return to parliamentary sovereignty. But then as you get closer to the the UK's exit from the European Union, what do you find? You find that in the vacuum left by the inability to rely on EU legislation, you find British legal institution starting to fill it rather than Parliament. In some ways, I think 
what's happening is changing. I think there's no going back. We are in new territory for the British political system and its relationship to the judiciary. It will not be the same as it was post-Brexit for the reasons that you were saying, Catherine. But it still seems to me that what we're seeing about the role of the Supreme Court today is somehow tied to the crisis within Parliament. Parliament hasn't been operating, I think, as it would have done normally. The party system, as we saw over the course of the, the last two to three years, essentially broke down. And that, I think, is the, the vacuum that's being filled by, by the Supreme Court at the moment. And that, I think, once Parliament is able to reorganise itself around parties that have some greater sense of loyalty and are able to sort of follow the whipping system and vote in ways that are more predictable along party lines, then I think maybe the recourse to law will not be as... It might not be so, just a lasting so, change. So that when should be an if, right? You think we will definitely just snap back into a more disciplined? No, okay, yes. If if that if those sort of parliamentary practices return in a more party sort of system way, then the need for law, I think, probably won't be as essential. But I, I think there's two different things going on here, and I don't think you can separate out of this the Corbyn issue because it is because the opposition MPs are unwilling to make Jeremy Corbyn prime minister that we are in this ludicrous position where we have a government with a negative majority that is being maintained in office by the House of Commons, while the House of Commons then tries to act or send the executive as a delegate of the legislature in order to conduct negotiations with the EU, at least in relation to getting an extension. That is something that is quite contingent. At the same time, though, I think there's something that's much more structural than that, is that when we joined the European community um, as it then was, we did abandon the principle of parliamentary sovereignty because actually there was a higher law which was EU law and Parliament was constrained in the way in which it could legislate because it could not legislate in ways that violated European law. Now you have lots of people in this country who want to leave the EU precisely because they reject that. At the same time you have lots of people in this country who want to find a way of recreating what the EU did as acting as a higher law, as you said, Catherine, within this country. And there's no agreement about that whatsoever. The conflict is going to come. And if, if it becomes a kind of like lawyers for a higher constitutional law and the, enough of the electorate um, for Parliament, we've got a massive you know, political problem that there isn't actually any way of resolving. We've all learnt a great deal about constitutional law and our constitution and, dare I say, the fragility of our constitution. And we've always been, I think, rather complacent and said, well, our constitution is flexible and it works and it's adaptable. But what we have never articulated, and that's what this case is about, the Miller II case is about, what we've never articulated is it's always been dependent on the executive behaving appropriately and properly and not playing rather fast and loose with some of the conventions and that's why what you're seeing now is a recourse to the courts when people don't necessarily behave in the way that traditionally no, they've done. No, I don't done. think it is. I think it's be, the electorate's job is to hold the, ultimately is to hold the executive to account. What's but that presupposes an election. <laughs> because you, you could say, I, absolutely, it's the executive behaving appropriately that keeps the constitution going but it's also parliament behaving appropriately. I mean, I think this is the point that we're making, which is Parliament behaving appropriately under this system is to replace an executive in which it does not have confidence with another executive. That is, I mean, it's not right or wrong, moral, immoral, but it is how the game works. Now, for complicated reasons, Parliament is no longer willing to play that game. So I think it's not simply that the executive is no longer abiding by the conventions. I think across the board, politicians 
are no longer abiding by the conventions. And that's a big part of our problem. And I think that's why it's finely balanced. I think there is, and I mean, effectively, part of the government's case yesterday was the one I've just been making, which was, by our rules, Parliament could have done something about it, and it didn't. Don't put it all on us. And I think the decision at the time to pursue the legislating against no deal rather than accepting that this was the time for a general election was a, one of enormous consequences because that is absolutely the traditional mechanism to reassert control over the executive is to dissolve it and form another one through a new majority. If you take that off the table, then it is true that if you take it off the table, the British system is left with what? The courts. I think the other issue that we've not mentioned here, which has been so crucial in all of this, is the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. That has been a game changer in all of this. Now, obviously, we've spent a lot of time thinking about the two-thirds majority and so forth. But pre-2011, the Prime Minister could have called an election at any time. Currently, his hands are absolutely tied by that. And, of course, the opposition, for political reasons, are making maximum use of that. So that's why you can see why the lawyers or the loyally minded MPs eventually went down the route to try and stop a no deal through the Ben Burt Act and they see it as important in terms of sequencing, take no deal off the table at least temporarily, give ourselves some breathing space, then have an election and then we'll see whether we get greater clarity as a result. Can I ask a few more slightly more quickfire questions? We could keep talking about this and it is really fascinating. So these are connected but broadening out a bit. So one more on the Constitutional Court. People say we're moving in an American direction, but there are obvious disanalogies there. There's a written constitution. I don't know whether it makes sense to call anyone an originalist in this country. I don't think it does. It's much more political. The judges are appointed through a political process. Are there other constitutional courts that we might be moving more towards? I mean, this is not like the German constitutional court, is it? I mean, obviously, under those systems, there is a written constitution, and it's the job of that court to interpret it. But are we are we still going to be sui generis just the UK version of this, or are we becoming more European, ironically, as we leave the EU? I mean, European in a loose sense, I think, uh, in the sense that you have some reference to some higher body of law that needs to be interpreted by, you know, legal figures, perhaps. That would be a deep irony, right? Leaving the EU was what made us more European. Boris Johnson would love it. But it's been happening. It was the... The more European bit, not the... (laughs) Legal bit. I think over the course of the UK's membership of the EU, there's been a process of constitutional... I don't know, modernisation, if you want to call it, that's taken the UK closer to the European system, but not in name, simply in content, but not in form. And now we're seeing the the consequences of that and having to come to terms with it. But it's definitely not the European Court of Justice. I mean, Catherine will know better than me. That's another sort of system, much stricter, I suppose, much more orientated towards innovation through the courts. The German Constitutional Court, because, I mean, Helen's talked about this a lot, as we've talked about various... European crises, we're used to the fact that it's really a a massive constraint on political action, isn't it? We're always hearing, well, the German government would like to do X or Y, but the Constitutional Court won't let it. But it's not a question about whether it it won't let it, because it hasn't actually stopped it quite as such. It sets limits on what can be done in relation to Europe, or in particular in relation to European matters, that basically act as a constraint, I think, then, on the way in which the German government can think about questions because it is worried about what can be taken to the German constitutional court. So, for instance, the ECB's actions, we've talked uh, in the yeah, past about it could 
the block could be the German there's constitutional been, there's court. There's been various challenges um, to the ECB's actions in the German constitutional um, court and essentially it looks like Merkel's decision making is always trying to stay just the right side of what the, the German constitutional court might might decide against. Because Catherine, do you think this is the first of many? I mean, after all, we could be back in the Supreme Court watching it gripped on TV in a few weeks' time when people challenge Boris Johnson's refusal to sign the letter or signing the letter and then handing it in in a slightly snarky way, which means he doesn't mean it, whatever. Is this the beginning of a sequence? It may well be and we've already seen there's a case before the Scottish courts already on in preparation for that issue but what I would like to say is that this constitutionalisation process actually predated anything to do with Brexit and I think it had a lot to do with devolution because devolution, once you've got a devolution statute which has got a sort of separation of powers between Westminster and Edinburgh or Westminster and Cardiff you're inevitably going to have constitutional battles about where those powers begin and end because, of course, by definition, the statute can't be that um, conclusive. And there will be... We've already seen cases... There was one about the EU Withdrawal Act 2018 about what can be done under the Scottish powers in relation to the EU Withdrawal Act. So there are already constitutional-like questions coming up which the Supreme Court has had to deal with. But I just want to say we can't get to a European position without having a massive, massive fight about it because there simply is not a sufficient agreement in this country to say that there is such a thing as higher constitutional Which is law. where we're proceeding in a traditional common law way of corgi steps rather than a great kangaroo leap of having a, a written there constitution. There will be a political reaction against this if it is simply done by the courts asserting authority that hasn't hitherto existed or been recognised. But remember the courts only get the cases that are brought before it. The courts aren't out there looking for work. So there is another development this week, which is the Liberal Democrats. Well, we talked about it last week, but it's been confirmed by their conference and Joe Swinson has been out there defending it, which is to move to being the revoke party and revoke without a referendum. So that's another thing where, I mean, it's analogous that Parliament might do something without recourse to the people, which it's thought by many people would provoke an enormous counter reaction to revoke the results of a referendum without having any other kind of popular vote. It's a risk Joe Swinson is selling it in what seems to me like a fairly sincere way. She sounds like she believes it, although I'm not sure she's currently the most adept politician out there. Catherine, is it is it potentially a huge risk for the Liberal Democrats, do you think? I mean, you can see what they're doing positionally, but related to these bigger questions, just presenting it as a kind of act contrary to some democratic principles she would only be in a position to deliver that if she won a general election and so she would argue that the legitimacy came through the general election so this seems to be another way in which our i don't know if we call it our constitutional order but our political shared political understanding is starting to fracture which is we've never really decided what is the nature of manifesto commitments in the age of coalition government so what is this is this a bargaining tool or is this set in stone she has said she will not go into government with pretty much anyone else but that's the only way she gets into government she said among other things that her great hero in politics is Jacinda Ardern and that's the person she wants to be most like Jacinda Ardern is prime minister of New Zealand because she went into government with a populist nationalist Winston Peters who is her deputy who stands for all the things that Joe Swinson is against it's not clear to me you can be Jacinda Ardern unless you're willing to compromise on some of these things so what is this is this a negotiating stance or, or has she boxed herself in? 
Like, she will not go into government with anyone. Or is it sensible stance? Because it clearly distinguishes her from the Labour Party. And so it's it's an identity issue that this is what the Lib Dems stand for. And of course, she will go into government if the parties will replace their leaders. She'll be fine going into government with Keir Starmer or with Rory Stewart or whoever. Uh, just not this lot. I, I think it's also very risky. Because if the Liberal Democrats find themselves in a situation where Boris Johnson managers to take the UK out with a deal by the end of October, the Liberal Democrats have nothing. They have nothing left. They have to then invent themselves once more. Well, as they, they become themselves. the return party. Well that, well, that is a big if. I mean, making the case for revoke because we've not yet left and it's all a mess and look what the government's doing and this is, you know, the end of the world versus we've now left, there is a deal. We want to go back in. I mean, that's a much harder sell, even for the Liberal Democrats. So I think... However way you cut it, I think it's also pretty risky. I mean, I think that the motives are pretty clearly political in the electoral sense, is that Labour would be moved by the events of the summer into a second referendum position. So in competing for Remain votes, the Liberal Democrats need to move a step further. And it clearly does cause some problems for the Labour Party. I mean, having said that, the Liberal Democrats are actually primarily competing with Conservatives where marginal seats are concerned. So in one sense, the question becomes, well, is that how is that positioned to Conservative Remainers rather than to Labour Remainers? I think in terms of the, the democratic legitimacy, the fact that she's saying there would be a general election that if the Liberal Democrats were then the majority party, that that would provide the authority democratic authority for revote what what that does is to basically set the bar lower than what the referendum did in terms of the democratic legitimacy for this particular decision because what the referendum does is it says you can express your opinion on whether britain should be in whether the united kingdom should be in the european union or not unconstrained by which party that you want to vote for at a general election if you say that the legitimacy comes from the the general election, then you can press the question of which party you want to vote for with what your position on Brexit is. So actually, it's easier, I think, for the Remain argument to win under the general election condition than it is under the referendum condition. Now, you could say we should have had a referendum in the first place, but I think it does raise some democratic legitimacy questions if you first of all put the question into referendum politics and then take it back into general election and that Politics. seems to me a question about first-past-the-post as well, because as we know, you can get a majority here on 35 or possibly next time even less of the vote. And that applies both ways. The Tories could win a thumping majority on really quite a small share of the vote. And that is not the same as even though people say 52-48 was close. 52 is 52. It's not 32. Last question, second referendum. If you follow the betting markets, which no one should, not having a general election this year is now favourite. And there is this growing talk that we can't get to a general election, so we maybe are, after all, going to have a second referendum first. I still don't believe it, because I still think that if this parliament's incapable of replacing the government, agreeing a general election, doing anything except writing a letter, it can't agree the terms of a second referendum because we do not have rules governing second referendums. So they have got to invent those rules from screen. You know, they've got to legislate for it. They've got to agree who votes on what, where, when, how. A parliament that can't even replace a government that it's lost confidence in you know, say we get a government of national unity, it will not have the parliamentary clout to get through the legislation needed for a second referendum. I still think, I could be completely wrong, but I still think you can't get to a second referendum before an election. But the talk is now that you can. 
It is just worth bearing in mind, the second referendum is a long drawn out process for legal reasons that there's got to be a question that's got to be agreed and the question has got to be checked by the Electoral Commission, that's probably another six weeks. It's thought the minimum period of time to get to um, a second referendum would be 22, 26 weeks. And then, of course, that presupposes your prior point, which is, is there a parliamentary majority even to go down that route? As you were talking, David, I was agreeing with you, but then it just occurred to me, that is all true, but what was the reason why opposition parties were unwilling to accept the move to a general election? One is that they thought there would be this fiddling around with dates and that it would be pushed to after the UK leaves the EU and so they weren't trusting the government. Another is that clearly it wasn't a very attractive moment for the principal opposition party to have a general election, at least if you look at the polls. The great advantage of the second referendum is that it doesn't force MPs to go back to the polls and to go back to the electorate and have another vote and they may lose their seats. So I think it would be possible if the extension letter to Article 50 was eventually sent, if it was accepted, that that would be long enough. The agreement around what the second referendum should look like would be pretty difficult, but there would be a shared common purpose, which is that this avoids us losing our seats, at least for a little bit longer. We cannot carry on with a government with a majority of minus 40-something. No, I think it would have, this government would have to be replaced by a government that accepted the extension. So this government would either be a Corbyn government, a Corbyn government on the current parliamentary arithmetic is going to struggle to pass legislation because Tories will block it, or it's going to be a government of national unity. And a government of national unity will, I'm sure, be quite good at doing things like agreeing an extension, but it's really, really going to struggle with whipping operations to get people to agree a vote where we don't know how many questions is it going to be, no deal remain, you can't rerun in, out. What's the deal going to be offered? You know, a government of national unity is a weak government. And of course, by definition, if you're going to say, do you agree to this deal? The EU have got to negotiate a deal. And they're going to say, well, we're not going to put the resource and the time into it because you can't get it through your own parliament. So you go round and round in these never-ending circles. And there is no national unity. <laughs> that should be the note on which to end. <laughs> <laughs> we're stuck. <laughs> The short films that we've made for YouTube, we've got a couple out now that touch on things we were talking about there. One about how a second referendum would work, one called Who is Joe Swinson? If you go to YouTube and search for Talking Politics, you'll find them. You can subscribe and you'll get them every week. Not everything is about Brexit and we're going to be putting out an extra episode this week with Brett Fishman, who gave the best talk I've heard in the past year about Fitbit, Turing tests and the end of the human race. We're going to be talking about re-engineering humanity with him. And next week, other things being equal, we're going to be talking about what's going on in Italy with Chris and Lucia Rubinelli. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. <laughs>